Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Everything Is Black and White podcast. It's a pleasure to bring you another episode of Give Us Corner. I know it's been a bit of a while, but with the restrictions and what have you, we've only just managed to meet up and get this one recorded. You might be wondering if you're watching on YouTube why we're in our big winter coat. It's because it is freezing here in the Lane Head Microphone. Because with coronavirus, John, the heating hasn't been on and it's absolutely bollock, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. But yeah. We've got our love to keep us warm, mate, because uh, the, the guys we're going to mention today are absolute Newcastle legends that um, we loved. I loved witnessing all of them play. I got angry when all of them left, but that's a different matter. Mm. Present day love for Newcastle it doesn't keep many people warm, though, is it? But however, like John says, we're going to dive back into time. I will say off the cusp, though, we are talking about the Magnificent Seven, the Magnificent Seven, rather, those players who we feel left too early, were sold too early, and, you know, we look back with a bit of regret because, you know, we wanted to see Newcastle build a side around them. And we're going to kickstart with three legends of the club who, you know, all left in the 80s, and yet they left together, but even today, people still talk about their skills, their runs down the wing, their mischievous nature, their just the brilliant footballing ability that they had. And who are we going to kick off with? Yeah, uh, the three lads, of course, are Waddle Beardsley and Gascoigne. Um, I mean, wonderful, wonderful players. Incredibly, from Newcastle's point of view, the three were all sold in a three-year period. Uh, one was sold every summer from 1985 to 1988. Every summer, one of them went. Um and lo and behold, at the end of it all, in 1988, when Gascoigne went, the following season, 88-89, Newcastle finished bottom of the first division and were relegated. What a surprise. If you've got three Geordie kids, Geordie kids here, who love the club and are playing for the club but become so disillusioned because they can see the club has no ambition and that the club are going to cash in on them, um, then you can't fault them for going. But you've got to say, what ambition were Newcastle United uh, shown when they were lucky enough to have local kids who would all become England superstars and they cash in on them instead of building a side? We go down instead of challenging at the top as a consequence of that. Waddle was the first of those to, to leave us. Um, and he played between 80 and 85. He left in 85. 190 appearances for the club, 52 goals. Uh, he was sold to Spurs in July 85 for £590,000. Four years later, Marseille, who um, the French side, who in those days were magnificent, one of the best sides in Europe. Four years later, 4.25 million to Marseille. 
where he won the French title where he played in the European Cup final. I mean, the f the amount of money Marseille paid for him four months after we cashed in for less than a, less than a million was the third biggest transfer fee at that time in the world. He was the third costliest player behind Maradona and Rude Hullet and then Chris Waddle and Newcastle virtually give him away. The guy went on to win 62 England Cups, three French League titles, European Cup finalists, two FA Cup finals, FWA Football of the Year. Um, wonderful, wonderful player that just left. And when, you know, when you think about it, Andrew, when uh, Beardsley and Gascoigne saw him go, that's going to trigger them, isn't it? Because well, a, a club doesn't let somebody of that quality go and you think, oh, we're going to win something? No, I might have to go as well. Well, that was going to be my question because obviously you mentioned Beardsley and you mentioned Gaza there. And obviously, like you say, there was to watch Waddle go and they'll be thinking, well, where's the ambition? But with Waddle, the first of those three to go, would he have stayed if Newcastle showed some ambition and brought you know another couple of players in of his level? Or was he always looking to maybe get out and go to a, to a, a bigger club to move down to London, what what have you? I mean, can you just no? Kind of sum I mean, up? the idea the idea of, of Chris Waddle in in London uh, initially just a, a nonsense. He was a he was a little lad that had played up at Towlow. He was a sausage seasoner. Try saying that quickly uh, when he was playing part time football. Uh, I mean, he used to. He was petrified of the public. He was petrified uh, out of being a star. He used to live along the Tyne uh, towards the coast there. He used to come in on the bus to training every day. Uh, he went home after on a bus after the game, hiding behind the pink on a Saturday night so fans wouldn't, wouldn't see him. Uh, I mean, he walked about as though initially I'm talking when he first joined Newcastle night, as if he had a sack of coal on his back. He was slumped, he walked on the field like that. He was the original ugly duckling that become a swan. And he literally become a swan. He was a, a wonderful player. But I always remember talking to him later on when he blossomed about when he first arrived at Newcastle. And while he was signed by McGarry, he actually grew under Arthur Cox. And he was terrified of Arthur Cox. Arthur Cox was like one of these military guys, you know, the short cropped hair, we're tough, we are, uh, sort of manager. Um, and what he told me later on in life, he said he was like a schoolyard bully to me. He said he was always on my case. He said if, if I saw him in the car park, if he saw him in the car park, the, the gaffer coming towards him, he would duck in, he would duck round the corner just not to see him because for two years he said he was on non-stop on his case he made him do extra training sessions on the weights running the hard miles until in chris's words to me he said it bordered on cruelty uh, he said it actually bordered on cruelty and it was obviously it was coming dispirited. And Jeff Clark, who was one of the senior pros at that time, sent wonderful ball-playing centre-half who played at Sunderland as well, etc., uh, took him to one side and said, Chris, look, the gaffer only picks on you because you're worth picking on, because he sees ability in you, because he can make you grow and make you into a good player. If you had no chance, he wouldn't bother with you. And... Um, 
and he says, when he looked back, he said, I was terrified of Arthur Cox. I hated Arthur Cox. But with hindsight, he made me the player that I became because he was concerned enough about me and because he tried to mould a rough diamond into a smooth diamond. So when he left then, when the deal was getting sorted, contracts, what have you, do you think he would have had to be persuaded to move away from the northeast, you know, how would that go on? Because by the, what you're sounding, he would quite happy just being a home lad, so to speak. He was, he phrase. was, but that was to start with as well, Andrew. Um, once you see, Newcastle were in the depths of despair under Arthur Cox initially, they were in his second division, they were going nowhere, not fast, double fast, hurtling. To, towards oblivion, towards nothing, towards the end at the time. And Arthur Cox, and in fairness, the board as well, changed that when they signed Kevin Keegan, which was this phenomenal signing. Um, and after, after that, they signed a young lad who will be the next guy we talk about in a minute, Peter Beardsley. So all of a sudden, you've got up front as your front three, Keegan, Waddle and Beardsley. Now, once you got these together, this Waddle, who was terrified of his own shadow, who would just want to, you know, melt into the background, suddenly start being a player. And with that came confidence. And the three of them together won Newcastle promotion uh, out of the second division, put them back into the into the top league. And all of a sudden, this ugly duckling was a was an absolute terrific, terrific player. I mean, the guy that took the 59 bus along the Felling Bypass to Newcastle uh, when he first started, and he used to go, he had a 15 quid suit, you know, that he bought in the sales, and he used to wear the 15 uh, quid suit and get the 59 bus along to training and apologise for being alive. Once you start playing with Keegan and Beardsley in in a front three, suddenly the sack of coals he had on his back went, he got his head up, and his ability to play comes shining through. Now, once he knew he was a player, and those three up front were a joy to watch, were a joy to watch. And when Keegan, we went into the top division, Keegan retired, uh, that side of things changed. But suddenly you saw Waddle and Beardsley, and by now the manager Arthur Cox had gone down to Durham and Jack Charlton was in, and neither Beardsley or Waddle were great fans of Jack Charlton in his one season there. Jack Charlton was in charge when Waddle was sold, and Beardsley disliked him intensely because of the style of play rather than the person. Um, suddenly Waddle saw that he was better than that, and you know you're better than that because you're tapped all the time, aren't you? And all the big clubs want... England wanted him. Bobby Robson thought he was absolutely fabulous, fabulous so player. Um, wanted him uh, so much, uh, and Spurs wanted him so much that all of a sudden, you know, being at a Newcastle side that weren't building round Waddle and Beardsley, before Gascoigne came onto the scene, broke through, it wasn't good enough. So when you first heard about Spurs' interest, what was your initial reaction? That it was almost inevitable. And what 
have Newcastle always been this club that gets to the cusp of a breakthrough and then doesn't break through? Um, and having gone up with this wonderful front three, almost before we played a solitary single game in the first division, back in the first division, the whole picture changed. Keegan retired the minute promotion was won. Terry McDermott, who was the midfield boy that come back to the club, never played for Newcastle again. Uh, so he went. Arthur Cox saw what was coming at St James's Park, got out and went to Derby County. So almost the, the whole impetus was gone. We got Big Jack in. Now, as a bloke, I have adore Big Jack. He will, but as a manager, he's wonderful at taking small clubs or small countries and making them get results they've got no right to get. Republic of Ireland was a terrific example of that, and he does that magnificently well. He got Middlesbrough from the second division up, Sheffield Wednesday. He was, he's wonderful with those, but he is not wonderful for... A club like Newcastle United, whose fans want you to play expansive football and look good on the eye. And he inherited two players of the quality of a young Waddle and a young Beardsley, but didn't build his side around him. In that first division, he didn't build his side around him. He signed two hammer throwers to play up front, Tony Cunningham and George Riley. Eight foot six centre forwards, belt it up to them, let them knock it down, and we'll play the percentage game and try to finish. Waddle and Beardsley, who used to go with Keegan interlocking all over the park, were virtually put out on the wings, outside right and outside left, and, and Beardsley was absolutely infuriated by that. Uh, and it was a it wasn't using in a way he had one of the greatest midfield players ever with the Republic of Ireland Jack. Chippy Brady, but didn't want to play through midfield, wanted to bypass midfield. Public Rhineland fans adore him today. He's, he's one of the greatest managers they've ever had. It was not right for Newcastle United. And the feeling within the club with Waddle and Beardsley was he's not right for their careers. And therefore, you're suddenly thinking, what happens now? So when the bid came in, is one right to assume that Jack kind of saw the price tag and thought, right, well, I can take that and I can build a side that I want. I mean, was there any was there any chance of Waddle staying when that bid came in for him? No. Unlike, unlike the case with Beardsley and Gascoigne after, but bearing in mind Big Jack only stayed for one season, uh, with the other two, they received good offers at increased wages for new to sign new contracts. They'd seen Waddle go, they were looking at what the situation was, they didn't fancy it. Waddle never received a good offer of, of a decent increase on his wages and therefore was looking to get out. Um, it was very difficult to, um, to disagree with that as much as it killed me at the time because you suddenly realised what you had. You know, the, the amazing thing is, you think of the talent of, of Waddle and Beardsley. And Waddle was playing at Tau Law uh, in, in the Northern League, up on the, on the, the top of God's Mountain, mm. 
uh, and Beardsley couldn't find a club when he was at Walls End Boys Club. He was 18 or something. He was never an apprentice boy. He was 18 when he when he, And yet these two lads become what they become, and they almost fell into Newcastle's lap. Uh, you know, uh, Waddles certainly did. They got him for a round of shirts and a couple of footballs, I think, for Tyrell. I mean, at the beginning of that season, it had gone all right. I remember you used to tell me a story that you know, Newcastle were heading to the top of the table, maybe, and Jack, Jack kept his fishing trip. They did, the yes, boot. they did. They so, did. in that case, and it's it's a little bit similar, not quite to, to the Alan Shearer, Rude Hullet thing, where imagine if that form had continued and then Beardsley and Waddle not being happy at the way things are on the pitch for themselves, they would have had no option, maybe, but to, to maybe say, right, I am going, and... and, and Jack Charlton looks a bit like a hero because Newcastle have, you know, top four of the, the first division. They were never in any danger of going down in that first mm. division, that first season up under Jack Charlton because he's wonderful at organising you not to go down rather than wonderful at organising you to win the title. Um, and they weren't going to go down. But Jack always, Jack had this uneasy relationship with Waddle, but in particular with Beardsley because of the style he played style of game he played, which was very effective in terms of getting results. As I said, Newcastle were never in any danger of going down. But he had an uneasy relationship with those players because they could play, and he had an uneasy relationship with the fans because they didn't want them to play the Jack Charlton way. So Jack, and, and Jack was a very proud man and was never going to stay at the club if he was not wanted. And by the start of the following season, uh, he, he was gone. But unfortunately, so was Waddle. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a great story that Gaz has told recently on a on a fellow podcast channel about the way Jack Charlton resigns. He literally just asks, "Do I need this?" Uh, says no, and then he's off. I mean, it's a fantastic story the way it ended so quickly. Mm. But what I want to ask is what the board felt about this sale of uh, Chris Waddle, because obviously, I mean, they would have had to, to sanction. Uh, did they did they char- talk to Jack about selling their their flair player? Did they try and persuade him that you know we really don't want to be selling them or did they think about the money and the what that could do you know for the future of the club yeah um they certainly weren't concerned about selling them because they they, they sold they never tried to stop the brain drain they, they sold waddle then the following season some of the sold beards in and the following season they sold Gascoigne. so they weren't bothered about and by the way you know that you were lucky enough to get them but you, you can't buy for huge money that quality it, it wasn't getting the money in and that and the club will now buy good players and off we'll go. You can't buy better players than you've got. Waddle Beardsley and Gascoigne are as good as it gets, man. I mean, they played for England together. That It's as good as you get. You hang on to the crown jewels. You don't sell the crown jewels. But Newcastle were always inward looking. Uh, they, they didn't. They saw a chance to cash in and they cashed in. Uh, and it was as simple as that. And they got what they deserved. They were relegated. And they were relegated bottom of the league. They, they, they weren't just unlucky. They were relegated bottom of the league. Um, and to realise how good Waddle was in the whole of his career for younger guys that perhaps didn't seem as much. You, you remember Olivia Bernard, who was the fullback that played for Newcastle uh, in um, the days of Bobby Robson? Uh, a, a lovely left back. Uh, I always remember Tong Dolly because he came back and lived in the northeast and still does after he, after his playing days were finished. And he was a little kid in Paris at the time when Waddle went on and played for Marseille when they were one of the great sides of Europe. 
and he said that when he was in Paris, and you know, kids always have heroes, playing heroes. He said his hero was Chris Waddle. At the time, Ollie was a centre forward, good enough to play for France at under 16 and under 17 level. That's how good he was before he became a left back. And if you remember, he was always an attacking left back. That's because he, he had this, he had been a forward. And he said, when he was a little kid in the, the streets of Paris, he used to try to run like Waddle did, who was a, had a very distinctive gait. He tried to do the tricks and flicks that Waddle did because Waddle was a legend in France at the time. He says he also saw Ginola play on the boxing up because uh, he was in France and he was the, the wonderful model type player and had he said and, and I always thought he was a good player but my hero ironic that his hero was a Geordie and then, and then he come to Newcastle Olivia Bernard but that was how good uh, Chris Waddle was and when Chris Waddle was at Marseille who are a tough tough crowd make no mistake about that down on the south coast of, of France passionate as can be but by Jove, if you play badly, you know about it. And if you play well, you're a legend for life. And Chris Waddle to this day is an absolute legend in Marseille. Uh, and that is how how good that lad was. And for us to let him go, he went for under a million, was criminal. Because you only send one message to the other two great kids. And... What sort of a... You're lucky to have, in a lifetime, one local kid as good as that. You had three at the same time, Waddlebeards and Gaskell, and you sell all three successive seasons, and then you're surprised if you're relegated. You deserve to be relegated. He, he, he was a wonderful player. But he was the the one that you saw the biggest difference in. You saw Beardsley and Gascoigne continue to grow. But he didn't look a player at the start at Newcastle United. He almost apologised for being alive. He didn't look a player, but he becomes such an elegant player. Wonderful, wonderful. So Waddle goes, and I guess some of the fans might, well, most fans be angry at that, but they look at it and think, well, we've still got Beards, we've still got Gaza. Oh, yes. So it's kind of a, a balancing it out. Okay, we've got a bit of money. Maybe they'll invest it in the right sort of player. And, you know, football can be a very fickle game, can't it? You know, if they go out and buy someone who suddenly becomes a well, world beater on the pitch. Yeah, so funny enough, though, Andrew, when he, when, when he went, the atmosphere at the time when he went, it was portrayed deliberately by the club. It, this is a fellow walking out on his local club, right, okay. if you like. So there was this feeling, and you know what Jordies are like, the love, loyalty. And, and if, did if the fans we, believe that? I think initially they did. They didn't in time, but it was sold by the club. Well, we can't keep him. He wants to go, he's walking out on his etc. etc. Aye, because you've got no ambition, because he's seen from the inside that this club's going nowhere fast. And the funny thing is that immediately, while these guys were still playing later on, whenever Beardsley or Gascoigne came back to play at Newcastle United to come back to a hero's reception from the fans, Waddle never did, because he was never forgiven, because the feeling was. And it's quite ridiculous because they're all left under the same circumstances to benefit themselves by going two of them to Spurs and one to Liverpool. Um, but 
Waddle was always perceived differently to the other two. Waddle was perceived as the guy that turned his back on the, on the club, and the other two had to go because it was there was a lack of um, uh, ambition within St James's Park, and it was the club's fault. I find it ironic we're talking about Chris Waddle because I've got the beginnings of a mullet, and by the time this is aired <laughs> in the middle of March, we're recording it 23rd of Feb, I feel I'm going to have a proper Chris Waddle haircut. Well, hey, hey, you've got to remember, he got on top of the pops with Waddle and Hoddle and had a record <laughs> at number six, so it didn't do him too bad at the time. I'm uh, going to end up looking like Tom Hanks and Castaway by the time these barbers open. Um, <laughs> so we're on the beards and on to Gaza now. Yeah. I just want to understand... Because obviously, in today's world, there's always rumours flying about and, and clubs very rarely come out and say, um, he's not for sale. The manager might come out and say it. And we, we saw that with Andy Carroll, and I think you're going to briefly mention him later on the show. Mm. Did the same apply here, where the rumours were flying around and that the club come out and say, we're not going to sell Waddle, we're not going to sell Beardsley after that, or we're not going to sell Gaza? No, not 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 in any uh, way that was going to register. There was very, you see, in a, in a way, when you look back at it, Andrew, there was very little time because they went summer to summer to summer. You know, it it, it wasn't like oh, you, you're under a lot of pressure. Nobody thinks when you've got Waddle out and you've got the, the amount of money from him that that at the end of the following season you're going to sell Beardsley. And then at the end of the following season, you're going to sell gas. It all the events happened so quickly; they almost didn't feel, didn't receive any backlash at the time. Um, but there was inevitability of it. When once the first one goes, it's a domino effect, isn't it? Once the first one goes, the second one thinks, "Well, Chris is off. I better be off." Like, and then the third one said, "Well, look at the other two. Uh, what's?" And I mean, Beardsley. I mean, he played for us 83 to 87. We got him for £120,000, which was absolutely peanuts in in September of 83 from Vancouver Whitecaps, where he'd gone over to play for Johnny Giles, who ironically was a a lovely little player in the mould of Beardsley himself apart from the fact that he absolutely cut people in half, which which for a quality player was quite exceptional. Beardsley never did that. But Peter learned a lot from being out there and playing with Johnny Giles. But come July 87, he was off to Liverpool for 1.9 million. Uh, yes, we, we got him again the second time with the entertainers when KK, who had played with him, brought him back. But the criminal act of selling him was the first time. Not the second time, because eventually the second time his sell-by date was coming up. But obviously he stays for a season after Waddle's gone. What, what, what is that all about? Because he's, he's quite understandably, he's, he's a bit miffed at the way Jack Charlton managed him, then Jack goes, but then he's um, you know, also looking at Waddle and thinking, well, he's gone, what, what's the point of staying here? That's the ambition. Wh- which element's coming to play? Why did he stop for that year, that season, before actually going? I think it would be very difficult for Newcastle United to have sold all three in in a matter of uh, one close season. Uh, I don't think that was ever going to happen. And it takes a little bit of time, I'm talking about months, uh, for it to dawn on you that this club isn't going anywhere. You know, you sell Waddle, you think, this isn't good. Did he invest the money from Waddle wisely? Why no? 
<laughs> of course I didn't know. You, you can't invest it wisely because there's nobody as good as Waddle, there's nobody as good as Beardsley, and there's nobody as good as Gascoigne. So whoever, whoever you buy is going to be inferior. I mean, once Gascoigne went, the third one, um, the, the following season Newcastle went down, they actually invested quite heavily by their standards. Dave Bessons. In that season, right? yes, in Henry. In the, they, they invested... But it was far too late. The players were far too inferior and they went down big time. Um, but, you know, you look at Beardsley. I mean, good God, this guy ended up with 59 England caps. He won two championships with Liverpool. He won the FA Cup with Liverpool. He was in a finalist on another occasion with Liverpool. I mean, when I honestly look back at, at Peter Beardsley and, and the whole of his career, you can't believe that uh, to start with nobody really wanted him in football and it was only Bob Moncur that took a chance from it Carlisle um, because I'm often asked because I've been around Newcastle United for so long both as a fan from being a kid in the 50s right away through to reporting on them since the mid 60s until today they'll say who's the best players you've seen play for Newcastle United Um and it's always difficult. How do you decide that? It's always difficult to compare a goalkeeper with a centre-forward uh, in a, a, a centre-half with an outside left. It's always difficult. And there's always a feeling with myself um, that you want to go toward, gravitate towards a number nine because that's the Newcastle legend. They score all the goals. So they're the, the blue-eyed boys uh, and everybody else is the cause. So, uh, you know, you're always looking at Shearer and, and, and Supermac and Jackie Milburn, etc., etc. But when you look beyond that, when you broaden it up and you think, what's the definition of the greatest players of all? And what Peter Beardsley had was not only they built the score goals, and they were always exquisite goals. They were very rarely tap-ins. He would beat three men and then flick it into the, the bottom corner of the net. But he also created goals so wonderfully. When Andy Cole scored 41 goals to smash all the records for Newcastle United, half of them or more was made by Peter Beardsley, who scored 21 himself. So he had the ability to make goals and score goals and having given it a lot of thought over a lot of years and having had very very dear friends including three number nines who were very good friends in in war jackie supermark and alan shearer i've got to honestly say that the greatest player i've seen in a black and white shirt is peter beardsley i agree uh, with you on, that. on ability on everything about him on entertainment on he glided he didn't run he glided he didn't thump the ball he caressed it he he, he did every when you're a little kid and you've got romance about football peter beersley did what you used to fantasize about and he did it naturally and um yeah for me as an all-round player a maker and taker of goals a magician uh, with wonderful feet, wonderful vision, wonderful ability. He's got to be the top. 
and by the way, I've got Weddell and 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 in Gascoigne making the sandwich. He's the he's the meat in the middle, and you're not going to get three much better than those three. Mm. But Beardsley is top of the pops. No, he is for me as well. And I I only watched him when he came back the second time, so it's a pleasure to um to to be able to watch his highlights on YouTube and you see some of the goals that he scores. I always remember there's a sliding tackle kind of one where he slides in, he keeps the ball, and he chips it over the keeper. It's a beautiful he goal. Used to, he uh, he did that quite a lot. And and funny enough, Jackie Milburn was good at that as well, mm. where he would slide. It was almost a sliding tackle. Yeah. He would slide in, drag the ball back, and then boom, in the net. Um, and I mean, the wonderful thing is, he came to us as this little lad who Oxford and Gillingham had told him wouldn't make it gone to Carlisle and played for Bob Monker, our old skipper at Carlisle, went off to Vancouver Whitecaps. Everybody thought, bad move. You've gone out of the English game. You've gone over to Vancouver. What do you do? You, you know, that you're not going to have a career over here. And we brought him back. And the interesting thing, I remember talking to Kevin Keegan at the time because when KK arrived, and he only spent two seasons here, the first season he played with Imre Verardi at centre-forward. And Verardi scored a pile of goals, um, mainly because he was blisteringly fast, but he always scored with a second touch because his first touch, the ball was ended up five yards in front of him because he didn't have a touch. And it, his speed got him there again and he finished. Now, when you've played at the level Kevin Keegan played at and the way Kevin Keegan played, he said to Arthur Cox, the manager, I like the ball to feet. I like playing to somebody's feet and getting it back. Verardi scores a lot of goals, but the moves break down. We didn't win promotion with Verardi and Keegan up front. The second season, if I'm to stay, and he had to sign a, a new contract to stay, then I need to have a centre-forward, another guy with me that can actually play. So Coxie said, OK, we'll find that guy. And then in walks this little fella into the training ground, this little... Geordie guy, and Keegan said, I look round, and I said, who's he? This little this little slight kid walks in, and Arthur Cox said, he's your new striker. And KK said, God help us. Just looking, never, he said, I've never heard of him. What's he good? And yet, the bond between them, telepathic on the field, the bond between them as people, because Beardsley worshipped Keegan when he when he played with him, and that's and he came back when he was managing the entertainers and played for him again. Um, and he said, "I was never so amazed as to see because once we got in training and once I got on the pitch, and I realised that I already had Waddle, and now I've got Beardsley." Oh, so who tipped Arthur Cox off then? Because that is quite a gamble in many ways people would look at that based on what you've just said there because you know he's he's given Keegan what he demanded he's given Keegan what he wants and then he's brought in someone who Keegan doesn't know and has that reaction so what give Arthur Cox that positivity that Peter Beardsley was going to be the man to to keep Keegan here well a, a lot of the scouts around this area had been involved heavily with Newcastle and with Walls End Boys Club Peter Kirkley who's an absolute legend at Walls End Boys Club, had tried to sign Beardsley because he saw how good he was, had tried to sign Beardsley for 
Burnley, who he was scouting for at the time. And he got him down to Drillingham and um, uh, in Oxford. But back he come. He was touting him around clubs. And, if it, and Brian Watson, who was the other scout, died donkeys years ago, bless him, a, a lovely man with a great town, was scouting for Bob Moncur. And between him and Kirkley, they got through Moncur, they got into Carlisle. And, of course, so you've got Kirkley touting him, you've got Watson touting him, and you've got Bob Moncur, who you then go to say, how good's he and Bob's a foot. <laughs> what a good player he is. So there was plenty of people on Tyneside beating the drum on behalf of Beardsley. And um, he'd gone to Manchester United and, and, and signed, played, I think it was on one game, one senior game, League Cup tie for... For um, for Ferguson, uh, so Newcastle were in a box seat to know things that other clubs didn't know, um, and therefore, and the one thing you were going to ask if you were Cox is what what sort of feet has he got? Are they velvet? And if they're velvet and and not clod hopping feet, then he's a man for me. And and that's the one thing you've only got to see Beardsley. Uh, then or any other time. Yeah, yeah, I played with him at James Park a couple of years back, and I tell you, he can still do it today. Oh, I, I remember him saying to me, "Who was this lad, uh, Andrew <laughs> Musco?" He said, "He's got a good future ahead of me." He said, yeah, "I was, he, I was in net. I conceded about seven, I think." <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he's a, was a talented, talented boy. Um, I mean, I remember when he was at Carlisle, I was telling myself, um, we had a, without going to great, we had a Northeast's most promising newcomer competition, uh, which I was asked to, to judge and, and be involved with. And uh, we drew up a shortlist, and the shortlist, these were kids that were from the Northeast, but hadn't become superstars, but might. And the shortlist was Rob Einmarsh, who at the time was Sunderland's skipper. And he was skipper at only 19 years of age. Uh, there was the British amateur ice skating champion, Kevin Wood. There was a local golfer called David Hawkins and Beardsley. That was the shortlist of four. We held it at the old audience cinema in Northumberland Street in Newcastle, sit-down dinner, and all these people were there. And I was sitting on the same table. I bear in mind I knew who won, but it hadn't been announced. I was sitting on the same table as the four nominees. nominees. And the funny thing was that in the conversation, Peter was just a quiet young lad at that stage, Rob Einmarsh fancied his chances, and quite rightly so, because he was only 19 and skipper of a club the size of Sunderland. So he was sort of talking quite confidently. And uh, I always, always remember that Kevin, Kevin Wood, the ice skater, she based her theory that she was going to win it on the fact that we'd brought her all the way from Wales, which is where she was then living and training, all the way up here. And we wouldn't have done that if she wasn't going to win it. Uh, so I, I'm squirming because I've got two people talking about who's going to win it, and I know that neither of them's won it, and who has won it, uh, Peter Beardsley. And the ironic thing, you know, is that when it was announced that Peter had won it, this little lad who was playing up at Carlisle at the time still, and he went up to get the trophy. Who did he get the trophy from? Jack Charlton, who later was his manager at Newcastle United when they fell out big time, and I mean big time, over the way Jack Charlton played. Ironic that Jack should be handing the, the trophy over to him and 
at the time, and we've told the story before, and I ain't going to do it again, but Bob Stoker was at then taken over, and it wasn't Moncur, it was manager at Carlisle, and went ballistic because he thought that in giving him that award and doing an interview with him, that I was trying to tap Beardsley for Newcastle. Yeah, that was on the last episode, yes, wasn't it? With yes. about Bob Moncur, and he knocked on your door, didn't he? And he offered him some kippers. Yes, that's right. Let's talk about the third gentleman. Yes. Another man who needs no introduction. Gaza. That is Gaza. And again, we've covered him on Gibber's Corner. Just hide that into your podcast channel and you'll be able to find that and listen to all the wonderful tales between John and Gaza. Now, again, the interview that I've seen him do recently, um, he talks about the sale of these two, you know, and how he, he's devastated and he's good. Because yeah. he's a young lad and again, at heart, he's, he's a supporter and he wants to see the club do well. But also, you know, he's he, for all... The, the criticism he's got, he's, he's still quite switched on. He can see what is happening. He can see totally. that the sale of one of them beards, it's, totally. it's not going to do anything. You know, he's just, he's this kid, he's rising through the ranks, you know, he's he's had to have his socks pulled up maybe by Jack Charlton to, to kick him into gear, but he's he's coming through the ranks, he's making his name, and then he sees these players get sold, and he, oh. he, his head's obviously going to be turned. Well, not only turned, but you're going to become disillusioned, aren't you? Because if you're playing... It's a team game. It's not a, an individual sport like, say, tennis or, or, or whatever. It's a team game. And if you, however good you are, if you're going to play the clever ball, you've got to have somebody that's reading that and going under, which is what Waddle would do, which is what Beardsley would do. If you haven't got that calibre of player around you, not only can you see that the club's going nowhere by selling them, but your life becomes tougher in their absence. And um, I, I think Gaza saw that and realised uh, that, you know, he would have to leave. But also, you've got to leave if you want to win things. It was, And at the end of the day, you do want to win things. One of the great tragedies of life, I think, is that Alan Shearer only won one winner's medal in the whole of his career and that was the Premier League title with Blackburn Rovers because he should have had a hatful of, of medals because of what a great player he was. He's got perhaps the greatest accolade of, of all. He's the greatest goal scorer in the history of his own club, Newcastle United. But he ought to have had medals all over the place. And unfortunately, people like Gascoigne and... Waddle and Beardsley got their medals away f away from Newcastle. So as Gaza's rising through the ranks, are we seeing that playing with likes of Waddle and, and Beardsley, that made him the better player, that made him stand out? Because we know he's got this brilliant individual talent, but I'm just wondering if it had just been, say, him coming through the ranks, do you think his, his reputation would have blown up so quickly? He had so much ability and was such a bubbly, infectious character. I mean, he thought he could carry the world on his shoulders and, 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 and it wouldn't weigh heavy. He, he, he was quite a, a different character to the other two. Um, it would have been tougher for him, but nobody would have kept... Nobody would have kept uh, Gascoigne down. You maybe could have kept uh, Chris, a young Chris Waddle down, but Gascoigne... Had, you know, he had more front than Blackpool. Uh, he, he was just that sort of, of player. Um, but he was never anybody's fool. And he, he was courted by, you know, I mean, he was the, the, the 
supreme kid and was such an infectious player and made so many things happen. I mean, I was very privileged to be around all three of them. I mean, the first two, Waddle and Beardsley won Northeast Player of the Year in successive seasons, just bef- Waddle just before he left, Beardsley just before he left. And um, the prize for that was Hennessy Cognac uh, were the sponsors that did that, that prize. And what the player got was at the end of the season, they went over to Hennessy and stayed in the chateau where Hennessy Cognac was made and then were taken to the Lido nightclub, um, front seats, etc., etc. And I went along to do the report on the whole trip. I mean, it was a bit of a, a sort of a life, but somebody's got to do it, so <laughs> along I went. And I went with Waddle the first year and I went with Beardsley, the year after. Uh, by the time Gaza come along, it wasn't really happening anymore. Uh, and wonderful, wonderful times. Um, and very special. And that was the beginning of the feeling, well, we're going to go on and we're going to be superstars. Um, but if they'd stayed at Newcastle, Waddle wouldn't have played in the European Cup final, which is what he did with Marseille after after hitting the jackpot with Spurs. Uh, Beardsley wouldn't have won first two titles like he did with Liverpool. And Gaza wouldn't have gone to Lazio and and in uh, Italia 90 become this world superstar that he become in that time. And, and you know, it. I was lucky enough to be around Gaza in particularly a long, long time. I went out and stayed with him in in Rome, in his, in his villa out there, and uh, I knocked about with him with Jimmy Gardner with Five Bellies, his, his big, big mate. Uh, I did loads of talkings with him. He helped him and Shearer helped rescue Gateshead when I owned him by doing fundraisers for me. Um, he, from a kid, I mean... He, you just couldn't help but love him. I mean, he was a kid who was in charge of looking after Kevin Keegan's boots when Kevin Keegan first came to Newcastle as a player um, and polishing him, cleaning him, etc., etc. He took them home with him, on the bus home with him, to show his mates so he could say, look, these are Kevin Keegan's boots at the night. And he took his, he took them out in the brown paper parcel on the night to show his young pals in Gateshead, these are Kevin Keegan's boots. The only difficulty is... He left them on the bus the next morning, and when he got to the ground, he had no Kevin Keegan's boots, and when Keegan asked for his boots to go train, Gaza had to come clean that he'd lost them. Um, and, but, and he was just a kid at the place, but KK couldn't, couldn't help but laugh privately and said, nah, nah. and the same with the manager. Uh, it was the way it was. He was infectious. He, he, he was a very, very special talent, that for us to let him go was a... I mean, I remember, I used to, as I say, I did a lot of talkings with him, and um, I mean, I remember just giving an idea of how scatty he was. I remember doing one in Ashington, and um, he said, I went to pick him up, and he said, don't pick us up at home, Gibbo. He says, I'll be down at, at Jasmine Tennis Club. I'm going to play some tennis in the afternoon. Come and pick us up there, and we'll go straight on to Ashington. So I go down, no bother, to Jasmine Tennis Club. He's he's still playing. 
I go down there and he's supposed to just jump in the Cornwall off Dashington because what you was straight on stage. He's still playing the doubles match. Gives me a thumbs up. Continues playing the match. Another half hour playing tennis before he wins. Comes rushing off. The sweat's pouring off him. He says, Gibbo, I can't go up to Ashton like this. Get drivers home to Dunstan, he says, and I'll just get changed. So I'm thinking, oh, the time's running. So I drive him all the way back to Dunstan. We'll get to his house. Just wait a minute, mate. I, I won't be two seconds. Come in, sit in the kitchen. Go inside. He rushes upstairs. He's shouting to his mum, where's my shirt? Where's that nice white shirt that you're just dying? Turned out his old man, John, had put the white shirt on and gone down the social club for a few pints, so he didn't have a shirt. So he then's rummaging around to put a shirt on, puts a shirt on, pulls his, his pants of his suit on, realises that he hasn't got the jacket. Oh, I left it at my girlfriend's last night. Gibbo, just jump in the car, we'll pop around my girlfriend's and, and get me jacket. So, so we then go to his girlfriend's and gets his jacket, puts his jacket on. We're now setting off fashion. We'll get there an hour and, and 20 minutes late to go on stage. All the officials in the social club are standing outside the social club, peering down the street to see if we arrive. We arrive to icy stone silence from them because obviously annoyed and they've had a crowd growing increasingly bloody agitated. And, and he goes on stage and he's suddenly telling them all the jokes, rolling about. He, he plays uh, the piano that's on stage. Daft slapstick comedy. He, he, he was like... Um, Cooper, uh, he, you know, he, and everybody loved him and he come off to a resounding, and he's a Ben. This was him at the stage where he was a Ben, but he had that infectious way about him that the whole of his career, it was also his downfall because as he, the greater player he got, the more hangers-on he got, mm. uh, and that produced the other side of the con. When the opportunity came to go to Spurs, and obviously Manchester United were very interested, and Alex Ferguson thought that deal had all oh gone yeah, through. he thought it was done. Did Gaza go back to the Newcastle board and say, "Look, show some ambition, and, and I'll stop"? Or as soon as the no. opportunity came, it, it was it was done. No, no, he knew there was no ambition. The only if Newcastle were going to show him any ambition, they would have kept waddling beards. That was a way of showing ambition. By the time he bailed out at the end of it. It, it was it was the last man out switch off the lights um, because as I say despite spending a few quid in the realisation that all three had gone at the beginning of the next season they went down not only not just down they went down as the bottom team in the in the division in terms of him leaving and the fans reaction was it a case then of yeah you know we're good to see him go but he's on to bigger and better things there was Newcastle tried to sell it at the time without coming out and putting it in a club statement. If, if here is local lads showing no loyalty to the club, they've got so much ambition for to win medals that they're leaving. Um, as if they were forcing the, the club's hand. Um, they left because the club has shown no ambition uh, to make them stay. When you're as good as they are... Um, you've got to show some ambition. At least when Shearer stayed and beat all the records, he, he signed for the entertainers. Two successive seasons were finished runner-up in the Premier League. At the end of the 90s, two successive seasons were went to the FA Cup final. All right, he didn't win anything, but we were always there or thereabouts. This side wasn't. And in terms of you reporting on this, and you're a fan as well, and we know 
It's, Very it's, much it's so. difficult. And a do, personal friend of the guys. Exactly. Being objective. And what was your, your coverage? Like? Because you're looking at this and you're thinking, well, they're not showing any ambition. You know, Waddle, Beardsley, Gazagos. Are you thinking, well, damn it, I, you know, I was expecting that to happen. And, and it's just another kind of a, a sign of the times, not too dissimilar to what we're going through uh, in present about the ambition of the owners. Newcastle have always been that type of club. The only in my time, uh, w- which goes right back to the 60s, the only time the Fleetingly won was during the entertainers when they actually bought the big stars, not sold them. Um, and that wonderful period after Hall took over the club and Keegan come in as manager and they went through the signing of Ginola and Beardsley and Philip Albert and... Andy Cole and Ferdinand all the way up to, to Shearer. That's the only time this club has shown consistent ambition. Um, so it was just here we go again. But that doesn't mean you accept it. Mm. Uh, and I didn't accept it and that is why I've never been necessarily too popular within St. James's Park because I won't accept it. I don't accept it now. What what is happening with Newcastle? I'm used to it, but I don't accept it because we're going to get nowhere by wearing blinkers. And I guess obviously it ended with the relegation, but they invested that money, as we mentioned previously, Bess and Hendry. Mm. But the way that rolled out, them investments didn't come off, then you had relegation. I suppose that was the beginning, really, was it, of the Magpie Group and, and, and Sir John Hall? Was that the kind of the start of it, the catalyst, these these sales? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, because what it produced was unrest. What it produced was a feeling that um, that this club was not only going nowhere, but it was going nowhere fast. Uh, and fans had to do something about it. And that's what John Hall was at the time. He was a fan that had a box upstairs. Um and then we, we got into the, the Magpie group and, and things started from there because it's criminal to waste the sort of local talent. We, if, if you as a club cannot get Geordies to stay at Newcastle United because you're not showing enough uh, ambition, when, when the Geordies living at home and playing for their club, you've got no chance, mind. If you can't persuade three Geordies to stay then you're going nowhere fast. So from the three arguably biggest names of the 80s there, minus Keegan, don't write in and shout at us, we're going to move on to three centre-forwards from down the decades. They don't need any introduction, but I'll name them anyway. We've got Malcolm McDonald, Andy Cole, and Les Ferdinand, all sales that really angered Newcastle United fans. We'll start with Malcolm, good pal of yours. He was on the podcast, as I mentioned, um, last month and it was one of those sales I guess that really really angered um, Newcastle United fans and, and and it was Gordon Lee's way of putting his foot down uh, oh it was fans were outraged um, at that time uh, McDonald was everything a superstar is supposed to be uh, extrovert flamboyant pictured with uh, champagne and an ice bucket and a huge cigar in his mouth. Just out the picture was me. Um, and that was his image. Bandy legs, you could drive a, a horse and cart through his legs. Walked like John Wayne into a room full of confidence. Terrific personality, but 
could put his money where his mouth is. He, he wasn't just an image. He could live up to that image. He scored. He didn't just score goals. He scored sensational goals. He didn't just score few. He scored a pile. Um, everything about him was larger in life, and that's made for a city like Newcastle. The um, the incredible thing, and, and Joe Harvey's got to take so much credit here, was that on the face of it, signing Malcolm McDonald was like. A gamble. He was only 21 year old. He'd never played in the top division, the first division at that age, never played in the first division, always played in the lower leagues, had started out as a fullback in non-league football. Uh, so his credentials he, he didn't make him an automatic success. It was a gamble. He hadn't even played in the top flight. Never mind scored goals in the top flight. He was only 21 years of age. But talking about the sort of character he was, you know, this this big cigar smoke, etc., etc., he's never played in the top division. He didn't sneak through the back door. He drove up in a Rolls Royce and into the front door and got out of a Rolls Royce <laughs> at Newcastle United. Now, hey, I tell you what, is that heaping pressure on your shoulders uh, or not coming up in, in it, but then your home debut is against Liverpool. The Liverpool who were going to go on and win the European Cup almost repeatedly from then on, with with a certain Kevin Keegan playing mm. on the side, and he scores a hat trick, uh, and that was the the Malcolm McDonald that um, we all come to uh, love and adore. So he left Newcastle in in seventy six. Yeah, was it expected or did it come out of the blue? Again, it was a bit like the situation with um, Peter Beardsley when he didn't take too well to um, uh, Jack John as manager in the style Jack John was going to play. Uh, you've got to bear in mind that Joe Harvey, the guy that that signed Supermac for Newcastle, was like a father figure to 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 Malcolm. He knew exactly how to handle players. Um, with little Terry Ibbett, who made all the goals, it was an arm around the shoulder, a kiss on the forehead, and have a fag at the end of training. With Supermac, it was a, a clip round the ear and told you, big-headed so-and-so, get your finger out on Saturday. You only scored one goal last week. You should have had three. And then, what? And out he went and scored three this week. Uh, he, he, he handled people magnificently. He become the father figure of, of Supermac. He turned Supermac into an England centre-forward. All his England caps came at Newcastle United, not at Arsenal, where he went to. Uh, they all come at Newcastle. Uh, for five successive seasons in Newcastle, he was their top scorer. He won a golden boot. He set a, a record for England when he scored five goals in one game. It was all under Harvey. And all of a sudden, Harvey goes under bad, bad circumstances. And Gordon Lee comes in. Now, Harvey and Gordon Lee were chalk and cheese. You couldn't get two different sort of guys. Two different philosophies on football two different men in the attitude to life generally. Um, Lee played his favourites, uh, never liked big-name players, saw big-name players as big heads in potential difficulty. 
players to get rid of. He wanted all his players to look up to him and be goggle-eyed about him. You weren't going to get superstars with that sort of attitude. He got rid of Supermarket Newcastle. He, he then took to his toes and went to Everton and got rid of Duncan McKenzie at Everton, who was the big flamboyant centre-forward of a different style to, to Superman, but he got rid of him at Everton. Um, he formed a clique at Newcastle, uh, Gordon Lee, when it was quite evident that Malcolm MacDonald wasn't part of that clique. Uh, so I witnessed at first hand the disintegration of any relationship between the manager and the star player. And what really brought it to a head was when, in a very cruel way, Gordon Lee got rid of the man that made all Malcolm McDonald's goals, which is Terry Ebbett. We played at Derby County this night, and... Um, Hibbert had a terrific game. We lost, but Hibbert had a terrific game. Coming at the end of the the game, Hibby's getting changed in the dressing room. They're getting on the coach quick because they've got to go all the way back. It was a night game. And all of a sudden, the skip is rolled out of the dressing room and there's a parcel on top of the skip with a pair of football boots in it. And the boys said, what's that, Gaffer? It was... Hibby, it was Hibby's boots. He says to Hibby, Freddie Goodwin, Manja Birmingham's here tonight. Go and talk to him. We're, we've agreed terms. We're going to sell you. Go and talk to him. And there's your boots. They put the skip on the bus, and the bus starts pulling out of, uh, out of, um, out of the ground, St. Andrew, uh, out of the baseball ground. And Supermax shouts to, to, to Gordon. He says, Gordon, Hold on a second, the wee fella's not on yet. He said, oh, leave him behind. He said, leave him behind, he's not coming back. And he, the bus left, left Hibby to talk with Goodwin. Hibby was decimated, didn't want to leave. And then he had to get home at the end of the talks afterwards. And Hibby was sold. And Hibby was the man that, it would be wrong to say made Malcolm McDonald, because Malcolm McDonald made himself. But he made a lot of the goals for Malcolm McDonald. He made the bullets from the yeah. fire. And when he saw him being sold so ruthlessly, he realised he didn't have a chance. And by the time he actually left, McDonald was prepared to leave because of Lee. But his great years were always here. It's just bizarre, though, because even if you don't like your flair players, when you look at McDonald's goal scoring record, oh. top scorer, top scorer, first division top scorer, and then he's he's sold, and you just think any manager worth their salt, even if you don't like the personality of the player, you think, look, he can literally score a goal with his eyes closed, and yeah. you've, you've just you've just sold him down the river. I don't I don't understand that. He had this huge dislike of personalities, and I remember a couple of things on that. I remember once standing at Stoke at the end of a game, and I knew what was going off between Gordon Lee and, and Malcolm McDonald, because Malcolm was a great friend of mine. Uh, and I never got on with Gordon because Gordon knew we were friends, and therefore if he didn't like Superman, he wasn't too keen on me. And I remember standing at Stoke in the press conference afterwards, and the, um, the, the national press are asking him about the Newcastle game, and he said... Our our centre forward, he says, quality player. 
good enough to play for England, etc., etc., etc. Does this, does that, does the other. And naturally, the press are thinking he's talking about Malcolm McDonald, who did play for England. And they're taking his notes, and I'm suddenly thinking, he's not talking about Malcolm McDonald. And he wasn't. He was talking about Alan Gowling, but he had never mentioned the name. He just said, our centre-forward, England quality, works hard, does this. To, oh, yeah, well, good quotes. Super Mac flamboyant guy is good. So, And then three-quarters of the way through, he, he calls him Alan. And they suddenly go, whoop. And he was talking about Alan Gowling. Nice guy, slow, one-paced, not a goal scorer, I guess, not the quality of Malcolm McDonald. But yet, he Gowling was in Lee's camp and Malcolm McDonald wasn't. I always remember at the end of a game at St. James's Park, for some reason I was in the manager's office sitting with Gordon Lee. Just the two of them. I don't know how the heck I got in there, but I was. And we got into a discussion about the match. And he said to me, by the way, your mate, he said, Never mentioned my your mate, he said. Disgraceful, he said. Never never ran back uh, at the end to, uh, with their centre-half who went up for a corner against Newcastle. Never went, didn't go back to mock the, the, the centre-half who went up front. I said, yeah, but he's on the halfway line. You've got to leave one guy up. He stands on the halfway line. Newcastle defence clear the ball. They're terrified because he's off on his bike and he's the quickest thing I've ever seen in my life and he scored goals that way. And when he first came to Newcastle, Jackie Milburn said to him, um, whatever you do, have enough in your tank to score a 90th minute winner as you have to score a first minute goal because that's what you're there to do. And, and that was the philosophy of MacDonald Alton. I'll stand up on the halfway line. And Clarky and Moncur used to say, we just hoofed the ball out and we knew he would be on his bike and he was away. And he said, no, that, that's not good enough. I said, women, women, this is your best goal scorer and, and you're complaining and he's won your match because he scored. And I said, well, Jimmy Greaves never did any, who was the greatest goal scorer in the history of English football. I said, he never did any defensive work at all. You had 10 people that could do defensive work and Jimmy Greaves who won near the match uh, and I said so you would complain about Jimmy Greaves he said I wouldn't have Jimmy Greaves on my side I said, he said so I just got to my feet and said Gordon it hasn't been lovely talking to you I think I'll leave now because we've got nothing in common forward to talk about and I left and that was his attitude towards Malcolm McDonald y you inherit the best goal scorer in English football you inherit what will be Edzi and Gascoigne at Newcastle United? You're not appreciative. You sell them. And then you wonder what went wrong. Of course, nothing went wrong under Gordon because Gordon had already deserted us. Having sold Supermac and Hibbert, as far as the fans were concerned, he then didn't stay around to prove that he'd done the right thing. He shot off, he shot off to Everton and it was, it, it, it was, it was absolutely horrendous. Um, who replaced Malcolm? Who came in and replaced him then? Paul Connell got in the the side uh, for a while. The, the the young lad who was up here and had been sub in the '76 Cup final, which was Gordon Lee's team when Soups played in that final. Um, <coughs> but you know, to lose—I mean, there was outrage on Tyneside. 
and um, when he went because you were selling one of the legends. Mm. Like, if you'd, can you imagine if you sold Shiva in his pomp at Newcastle? What outrage there would be about that. And of course, Malcolm McDonald being Malcolm McDonald, I knew for certain what was coming next. And what was coming next is the first time we played Arsenal when he was at Arsenal, we went down to Arsenal and lost 5-3, and Supermax scored a hat-trick. Of course he did. At, at Highbury. Then, we come up here, and Newcastle lose again to Arsenal at St James's Park, and who scores the first goal for Arsenal? Supermax. It was a knocking bet that it, that it would happen that way. But, I mean, he was sold for a third of a million, and... Um, the ironic thing, you know, you talk Newcastle cashed in on players. That's what this whole thing is about. That really, and the interesting thing on Malcolm McDonald was Newcastle agreed terms to to sell him to Arsenal. Uh, a phone call went down to uh, him at his house after training, and Malcolm was told, "Get yourself up to Newcastle Airport to meet Gordon Lee and." bring an overnight bag with you. He got up there, met Gordon Lee. Gordon Lee said, we're selling you, terms agreed. Terry Neal, Arsenal manager, sitting round the corner. You go and see him and go down to London. Flew down, being a big time Charlie, you come to Newcastle in a Rolls Royce and flew out in a private plane. <laughs> uh, they flew down to London. Then incredibly, Lord, Lord Westwood, Lord Bill, phones up the, the Arsenal chairman and says, you know, we agreed the fee, we don't think it's enough. Uh, they agreed on 275, so the Arsenal put the thing up to 300,000 and um, Lord Bill come on again and said, no, no, well, I've talked with the directors and I don't think that is enough money. Now, Supermac had gone down there with an overnight bag that's all, just a toothbrush and uh, uh, some underclothes and a new shirt. And he was down there a week, and he had to buy stuff down there to keep him going. He was down there a week while they haggled. And in the end, Dennis Hillwood, the Arsenal chairman, told him to come up to his house in Hampshire. He had this wonderful, wonderful house, and his lawn was like the size of the town moor. And he puts he put Supermac on the lawn with him and um, indicates to his butler hand to his butler, the butler comes out, my lord, he says, and bring a phone out. So he's got this phone, which he puts on a silver platter with a long, long, long lead into the house. And the butler brings it down, puts it on the table, and he said, uh, he said, before I make this last phone call, Newcastle United, what's your feeling about the situation? And, and Malcolm said, I think I've been messed about by, by the people up at Newcastle United. You've been messed about. There's no going back from my point of view. He said, that's all I wanted to hear. He phoned up, he phoned up there, and he said to Lord Westwood, Lord Westwood, we will offer a third of a million uh, club record fee. Take it or leave it. The deal's done here. The guy's sitting with me now, prepared to sign. Is it a yes or no on the phone now? Newcastle said yes. Put his hand up again, Hillwood, Butler comes out, two large gin and tonics, stuck them on the table and added gin and tonic and his Arsenal career had started. He scored goals 
like there was no tomorrow for Arsenal for a couple of seasons, then tragically got a knee operation, uh, a knee, a recurrence of a knee that had happened at Newcastle when he'd had an operation on it, which turned out not to be successful. And um, it finished his career. 28 by 29, it was announced that his career was finished, uh, which was absolutely tragic because he was coming into the best years of his career. But his best years of his career was at Newcastle, where he won all his England caps and where he become the Super Mac everybody knows and where his legend is. Um, although Arsenal still treat him like a king to these days, inviting him down to matches at Highbury. These days, he's still treated by them like a king, but his great time was up here. So from one legend to another, and to a manager as well, who was obviously he was more like than Gordon Lee was. And we're talking about Kevin Keegan in that instance, but mm. the player we're talking about is Andy Cole. And everybody remembers that moment when the fans confront Keegan. He's come out with Terry Mack at his side on the steps at the uh, the entrance to the stadium. And he's explaining him, explaining why he sold Andy yep. Cole. Yep. John, I mean, you were right in the middle of this. Oh, totally. It was sensational. Did it come as a surprise that Andy oh, Cole was down the road? When I first heard about it, I couldn't believe it. But everybody was the same. Nobody could believe it. Um, I mean, this guy had come up to Newcastle, uh, plucked him from nowhere, Bristol City, um, absolutely from nowhere, been at Arsenal, hadn't made it, gone down there, scored a few goals. Um, and KK, who had a, a terrific eye for a player, um, what had happened, the Halls, because Douglas and John all told me afterwards, they used to meet regularly for lunch with KK uh, to make it social, but talk about the club. And they're sitting over lunch, and John all says to Kevin Keegan, he said, um, Kevin, we've got to get out of this championship. We've got to get back in the top division. We can't operate in, and be satisfied with second-tier football. What can I do to help you get out and, and do the business in the top level? And Kevin Keegan said, get me Andy Cole. And Hall said immediately, right. They went down St. James's Park, got Freddie Fletcher to phone Bristol City. Now, they twice put bids in for Bristol City that weren't, uh, hadn't been accepted. They were run at the time by a committee of directors, 13 of them, huge. And by luck, that afternoon when Fletcher phoned Bristol City, the th all 13 were coming in for a meeting that afternoon. So Freddie Fletcher, who was the chief executive, says to Bristol City, we are going to make a bid, 1.7 million. Take it or leave it. If you phone, you've got a phone back in five minutes to say you accept it or we're going to go elsewhere. And that's the end of it. The phone back and said, we accept it. Now, the interesting thing at that stage was Newcastle were mortgaged up to the hilt because making right what had been wrong within the club, etc., etc., before they got on a roll. They were mortgaged up the hill. So to pay Fandy Cole, they got Trevor Bennett, who was the president, to put in a certain amount of money. They got um, uh, the shirt sponsors to put in a, sh a certain amount of money, and the whole, the whole family put in the rest to get the money together. The trouble was then... 
that they couldn't find Andy Cole uh, to get in touch with Newcastle. Uh, he was a single lad, a one-off. The Bristol City traced his car, they saw his car in town, but they couldn't find, they, they sent a fit club officials into town, couldn't find him. So they put a note in his windscreen saying, contact the club immediately on you getting this. Andy Cole was round the corner in a laundrette getting his undies done and watching his undies spinning round because he was a single lad and, and rather than doing them at home, made the call here, came up here. Um, and when I asked KK, I said, what put you, put you on Andy Cole? Because he wasn't one of the big, big names. He said, look, I tell you what, he said, we played them, Gibbo. He said, and he got, he had the ball out on the wing. He said, in Steve Howie was coming, roaring in to tackle him. He said, and Steve Howie played for England, quality defender, and I thought, our ball. He said, he flipped it past Steve Howie just before he got there, ran off the pitch, head up the, up the touchline, back onto the pitch, onto the ball, and was away. He said, when I saw it, I said, my sort of player and Keegan acted off gut instinct like that so little things happened and he said that's a player for me he once said to Terry McDermott they went all the way to Scotland to watch a player he ran him run out he saw him run out the tunnel and he said let's go home this bloke isn't for me and Terry said he hasn't played yet he said he doesn't run right this bloke's not for me and he didn't sign him. and 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 that's how Newcastle got Cole and then of course how did he start he, he was sensational um he, he, I mean, he scored 41 goals mm. in one season. I mean, beat everybody's record. And then was 41 goals, not won a penalty and not won a free kick. All in play. Quite stupendous. Mind you, got busy there pulling the strings. He ain't bad. But he was quite stupendous. So you then think you've got the best goal scorer since Huey Gallagher. And that includes Jackie Milburn and all that in terms of return for a full season. You've got the best goal scorer from. Hughie Gallagher, and then you're going to sell him? You're going to sell him? Now, what was amazing about this was the courage to do this was phenomenal, and the difference to all the other people we've talked about, Andrew, was that they were cashing in on all the others. This was because Keegan had this vision that he could actually improve a side by selling your best goal scorer in the history of the club. It was quite staggering. And everybody at the time, including the Newcastle directors, including Andy Cole himself, including all the players when they found out, and certainly including the press and the fans, were absolutely staggered. And I remember afterwards... Uh, I heard of it, I couldn't believe it, because you've got somebody that's the greatest goal scorer just the season before. And then I, I said to Douglas Hall at one stage, I said, you know, after it was all over, what, the background, were you still, he said, Gibbo, I was absolutely flabbergasted. He said, I'm, I'm meeting KK this day, and he said, uh, KK said to me, would you sell Andy Cole? And, Douglas Hall says, well, of course not. Don't we sell you 41 goals? Of course. I and, and Keegan said, what would you say if I said I would sell Andy Cole? And he says, 
You would sell Andy Cole. What on earth would you sell Andy Cole for? Now, one of the reasons was Ferguson had come on to Keegan and said that he fancied signing Andy Cole. At the time, Andy Cole was in a short spell of a drought, which all centre-forwards get. He wasn't quite scoring goals at the time of the phone call. Newcastle knew privately that they had him booked in at the end of the season to have an operation for shin splints. And there was a feeling, will he ever be the same guy again? As it happened. <laughs> he was bloody brilliant, was, yeah. He was, he was. <laughs> but also, at that time, Kevin Keegan, whose mind always goes 50 to the dozen, says to, he'd always fancied Keith Gillespie. He'd always felt Keith Gillespie was the sort of quick winger that would be terrific for Newcastle United setup. So he said to Ferguson, well, if, if we give you Andy Cole, would you let Keith Gillespie come? And he'd said, yes, he would. So he explained all this to Douglas Hall, who, who then began to understand and said, but I was going to have a heck of a job explaining it to me dad. You know, we're, we're trying to build this idea and we're going to sell our biggest asset. That's what Newcastle had always complained was Newcastle United were guilty of selling the biggest asset. But in Keegan's books, boots, he knew what he was going to do next. Um, now, the wonderful thing is that Newcastle United at that time with John Hall chairman and Kevin Keegan manager were very, very open with the fans. Unlike Mike Ashley now in Newcastle United. I mean, Kevin Keegan, as you mentioned, famously stood on the steps at St. James's Park where he'd been walking across the car park up the steps to go in his office. Newcastle United fans are congregating to say, uh, what's going on? This is, an hour. The f this is the first time that the golden boy of the North East, both as a player and as a manager, had critical fans saying, what's going on? Um, and he stood on the steps and explained as much as he could without any detail, but saying, you've got to have faith in me. You had faith in me as a player when I won your promotion. You've had faith in me when I got us into the championship and I'll get all the way. You've just got to have some blind faith and I won't let you down. Hall was on a train from London to Newcastle and heard about the rebellion of the fans, the uprising of the fans. He got off the train at Durham and went to the training ground, which was the old uh, county cricket ground, because he knew fans were there. And he did the same thing there as Keegan did at St James's Park and talked to fans about what they were attempting to do. And when the transfer happened, the it was the most sensational. It was a transfer that we honestly believed at the time because we were talking about January and we had a play to the end of the season. Looked like a deal that should never have happened. Even when I knew the inside story, I believed we shouldn't sell Andy Cole because you're thinking, who are you going to get better? Now, it might be all right saying these days, oh, well, we'll take Ronaldo or Messi. But try getting Ronaldo or Messi. That's a you know, there was no guarantee that we were going to get somebody better. Um, but 
the wonderful being open with the fans, which is what Newcastle United were and what they most certainly are not now with Ashley, but being open with the fans. I remember shortly after Cole went to Manchester United, fans at St James's Park unfurling a white sheet, bed sheet, and painted on the sheet it was it said support Kevin. Good luck, Andy. Toon Army lives. Now, you've sold your greatest asset and you've got a sheet saying all the best to Andy Cole, but keep your faith in the manager. That is uh, something that's quite incredible. I mean, Andy Cole didn't want to go. Now, the ironic thing is that both managers were proved to be correct because Andy Cole was fabulous for um, for Manchester United, won everything, scored a pile of goals, season after season after season. We, who were a little bit dismayed, ended up in that close season, we signed Ferdinand and then we signed Shearer. You're not going to complain about Andy Cole when you get Ferdinand and Shearer. So it all turned out right in the, in the end because... People believed in Kevin Keegan and Kevin Keegan didn't let them down. He delivered the goods. But at the moment Andy Cole was sold, it was blind despair, which very quickly was changed because Kevin Keegan had the guts to put his own reputation on the line and then deliver. Mm. And, of course, one of the next guy we're going to talk about is the guy he delivered. To, to the fans, which was Sir Les. Mm, what a player Les Ferdinand was. I mean, huh. it's just that gut instinct as well for Keegan to have the, the the foresight to do that, to sell Andy Cole and go after Les Ferdinand, who for me is, you know, he is up there with some of the best strikers we've seen. When you talk about the failure of Joe Linton today, you, you look back and you think, goodness me, I mean, Les Ferdinand, you know, not even, he's not, I mean, Joe Linton's nowhere, you know, on the same table as Les Ferdinand. Um, no, Joe, Joe Linton's on the same table as Givosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so he arrived from QPR. He's you know the club record signing. It's it's, it's a sum of great of great business for Newcastle. Real sign of ambition, um, and we all know what happens with Tenez and what have you. And I, I guess the thing that many people forget, and this is no disrespect to the other players, but when he was sold, he was 30, so he arrived when he was about 27, 28, which back then, it's it's a lot different to how it is now. You know, players go on until they're 34, 35, and they're still at the top of the game. You look at Ronaldo, for example. Back then, at the age of 30, when he was sold, one of the things was, you know, yeah, is his age, are we going to get £6 million, pounds, or I think it was £7 million pounds off Spurs, are we going to get that in a year's time? Possibly not, but then they're hit with this injury, aren't they? You shouldn't be looking to sell your best players because in a year's time their face value will be. That is what's wrong with football clubs. Mm. That's why football clubs aren't successful. They're successful to the bank manager, but they're not successful to the fans. The interesting thing with Les Ferdinand is that 
Keegan's original plan, when he let Cole go, it was because he knew in his own mind he was going for Ferdinand. But he was actually going for Ferdinand originally to play with Cole. The whole idea was that two of them would play for Newcastle in tandem. He'd wanted Les Ferdinand for a long time. It took 18 months to get Les Ferdinand to persuade QPR. Uh, on the deal and in fact I mean it's on record I've told the story before um, this business of Cole and Ferdinand in partnership um, KK was going down to watch a midweek match where, where Queen's Park Rangers were playing at Liverpool and he was going down to watch Leeds Ferdinand who he saw as a complete centre forward heading ability both feet holding the ball up, bringing other people in, the perfect centre-forward. He drove up, he got in his, jumped in his car at St James's Park, and as it happened, on a fluke, Andy Cole was just walking up the steps to go into the club in an afternoon to get his mail, to collect his mail and go home. Now, remember, Andy was a single lad at the time, so he didn't have commitments with family or whatever. And suddenly, KK spots him and says, Hey, Andy. What are you doing this afternoon? He said, I'm just getting my mail, nothing special, uh, gaffer. He said, get in the car. He said, well, he said, get in the car, come with me, and I'll explain while we're in the car. And he, he, so Andy gets in the car, and he explains to him he's taking him to Liverpool. And he, you know, he was expecting to go back to Crook, which is where his house was. He's taking him to Liverpool. And he says, I want, come here, I'm going to watch Les Ferdinand. He said, I would love Les Ferdinand to play with you at Newcastle. That's what I want to happen. He said, what I want you, he says, you're a young lad, you've got huge potential, you're going to be a great centre-forward, but I want you to sit tonight and not watch the match, watch Les Ferdinand. When the ball's now a penalty area, still watch Les Ferdinand. See what he does. Does he come short? Does he drift away from the centre-half? Watch when the ball's played up to him, what he does next. Look at one player, an hour and a half, nobody else, because that is what a great centre forward does. And um, when Cole went, it accelerated certainly what Newcastle were going to do in terms of bidding for Les Ferdinand, because they were going to get him come hell or high water, they had to. Um, and they did. Uh, a great, great signing. He he came here, his first season he played number nine, orthodox, and, and wore the nine shirt and scored a pile of goals, loved it, um, and was as happy as Larry. But Keegan, the wonderful thing about Keegan was he was never satisfied. Uh, never, ever satisfied. I mean, most clubs, having signed Ferdinand and been up there, would say, this will do for us. But it was always, what else can we do to improve the side? I'll tell you what will improve the side. We'll sign Alan Shearer. Uh, world record fee, etc., etc. Signs Alan Shearer. The immediate reaction of the football world was those two could never play together. They are both line leaders, out-and-out uh, -out centre forwards. They do the same job, the complaint tandem. That was what everybody said. There was nothing more wrong than that that statement. Uh, it didn't get off to the greatest of starts because KK went in and told Ferdinand, I've got a great strike partner for you, but I'm taking the number nine shirt off you and giving it to Shearer. And Ferdy was well dischuffed at that. He was well dischuffed that he lost the number nine shirt because he knew what the nine legend was in Newcastle and he'd scored a pile of goals in his first season as a nine. And all of a sudden, 
you bring in somebody, that's great, but I've got the nine shirt, and I should stay in the nine shirt. Um, so he was well dischuffed with that. But they went together so, so well. He'd scored 29 goals in his first season. No way they can play together. Yes, they can. There's fish go with chips, Morecambe and Wise, Lowell and Ollie, Simon and Garfunkel. They went together like that. Uh, and they really did. They, they were injured. There was long periods where one or the other was missing out the team through injuries, which cost Newcastle. But they still scored 49 goals between them. 49 goals between them. Shiva got 28, Ferdy got 21. Um, in that, we had the 5 0 with Manchester United, the wonderful one where everybody remembers they are there, chipped Schmeichel, but both uh, Shearer and Ferdinand scored. Of course, they did. Um, and we, I'm looking at Newcastle at that time and I'm thinking, has all my birthdays come at once? We've got a fabulous team, we've got a team that's got. War Jackie and Supermark in the pump playing together. Not one of them or the other, but together. And we had these two together. And I'm thinking, is this my birthday? Is this when, after all the wait, we're seeing Newcastle United win something? Unfortunately, KK had taken to his toes as he was always liable to do as a manager. He was so temperamental, it was untrue, KK. Uh, you know, if the dummy was out the pram and never in the mouth. Um, and he was always liable to go, and sure enough, eventually, he did go. Dalglish come in. Uh, Dalglish, you might well remember, was Shearer's manager at Blackburn when they won the Premier League title. He decided, in his wisdom, he was going to reshape his Newcastle United team the following season with only one striker instead of two up front the way that's become tradition since and that striker was obviously going to be Shearer so he was going to he was going to cash in on Ferdinand it was sold to Ferdinand that Newcastle directors were doing it for financial reasons which you've talked about 30 year old big fee from from uh, Spurs but Ferdy told me I didn't believe that for one minute because I knew it was because Dalglish only wanted to play with one centre-forward and that centre-forward was Shearer, and so I was out. He says that he believes if Shearer and him had stayed as twin strikers at Newcastle, they would have won the Premier League title, having finished runner-up two successive seasons. He believes that. He said, I never accepted Dalglish's reasoning that it was all down to the board. And of course... Sod's law, as I say, what happens while Ferdinand is actually in London talking to Spurs, Shearer does just about everything possible to his legs. Uh, at Everton, uh, he badly ruptured uh, ankle ligaments, fractured tibia, everything, the leg just disintegrated. He's going to be out for yonks. Newcastle have the audacity to phone Les up and say to Les on the phone, I, have you signed yet? He said, no, I'm going to talk to him today. Oh, well, don't sign. Uh, Shearer's got injured. Shearer's got injured, so don't don't sign and come back and play for us. Now, if you've humiliated a guy so much that you're throwing him out the club and then just because 
an injury comes along, you think he's going to be so grateful to come back home. And this is a Cockney that's going back to London, by the way, not a Geordie uh, who's up at Newcastle. And he said, no way. And you can't blame him for that. Um, I mean, the tragedy is that um, Ferdinand was never the player that he was at Newcastle United again, although he was at Spurs for some, what, six years or, or whatever, but was never the player that he had been up here. But I'm a great believer if we could have kept them two as our two centre-forwards and if Keegan had stayed at Newcastle United rather than went and was replaced by Dalglish or if Keegan had been replaced by Bobby Robson, which was a possibility at that time, I think we would have gone on and won the championship despite what Manchester United were doing with Ferguson and the whole history of Newcastle would have changed. I'm just looking at the stats of, of Les Ferdinand, 149 goals and 351 appearances. And he, he was one of those players that, despite his you know age, he, he still knew where the goal was, you know. Oh. Um, I mean... He was a fit boy. Mm, he played for Leicester City 2003-2004 and he still hit 12-29, and 29, which is oh, quite the record for a man who would have been oh, a master's and brilliant. Pete, but Peter Beardsley told me that... Um, Les Ferdinand was the best header of the ball he ever saw in all of his career. Anyway, either playing against him or with him for Liverpool, England or anyone else. Uh, and that's quite a compliment. And he was that good. Shearer was no slouch in the air, uh, but he was supreme. Um, would, you have, would you have kept Les for the remainder of his career? I mean, based on the stats, he could, he could, he could yes, have done it with the service. With, without a shadow of doubt, because he, he could have then become, eventually... Two seasons down the line, he, he could have then been the backup man that comes off the bench. I mean, everybody's time's going to go. Beardsley's time went. His time would have come. But his turn certainly hadn't come to be put out into green pastures at that stage of his career. He was at the height of his career then and ought to have been kept and ought to have become a, a gradual improvement. But when I think of what might have happened if Keegan hadn't gone, Ginola wouldn't have gone. Beardsley wouldn't have gone. Ferdinand wouldn't have gone. I mean, the entertainers were smashed and um, it, it become a totally different ball game. Missed opportunities in six-foot capital letters. Great sadness. So on to the final player now, the number seven of the magnificent seven that John has chosen. And it's someone that left in a different manner to the players we have discussed, John. Um, if you just tell us who it is and yeah. how he exited. Yeah, it's it's Frank Brennan who uh, was goes down in history as one of the all-time great Newcastle United players. He played for them for younger listeners. He played 1946 to 56, 10 years, 349 appearances, centre-half, seven Scotland Cups, won two FA Cups and came down from Airdrie for just 7,500 quid an absolute colossus physically and in ability. Six foot three, 13 and a half stone, size 12 boots. Uh, big in every way that was possible. And the, the outrage of him going was that he wasn't sold to make a profit. He was forced out of the club because he had the audacity to open a sports shop in competition to the chairman of the club. 
And he went, he won the cup with Newcastle United in 1951. He won the cup with Newcastle United in 1952. And by 1955, when they won the cup again, he was being forced out of the club when he was in his pump because all the boys went, were making peanuts in those days as a means of supporting his family. He was opening a sports shop in town and it just happened that Stan Seymour Sr., the, the, the guy who had been such a wonderful player at Newcastle when they won the last championship in 27 in the FA Cup at Wembley and had put together the 50s Cup side and managed them as well as being chairman. Uh, he had a, a corner shop in Market Street at Newcastle that sold sports gear and Frank opened the shop and Seymour forced him out, not only out of the club, but into non-league soccer. He went from being Newcastle centre-half that won two successive FA Cups at Wembley to playing non-league football for no shields because he had the audacity to open up a sports shop. And of course it, it caused outrage amongst fans. I mean, it, it's hard these days to realise how furious the fans were. A protest meeting was called to be held in the City Hall in the centre of town there. It was absolutely jam-packed full of fans who were up in arms and said this is an outrage, this can't be allowed to happen. Uh, the unions at the time, there was a, a firebrand union leader called Jimmy Guthrie who made an impassioned speech at the TUC conference that year about Frank Brennan's slavery at Newcastle United and what had happened to him. Um, all to no avail because Stan Seymour, who did so much good for Newcastle, apart from this one horrendous thing, both as a player and as a director, he did a fabulous amount. He was known as Mr Newcastle United. This was the one blot in the copybook and that he had the power to do that and the club had the power to do that. The guy went from being top of the tree to playing non-league football and went on to manage no shields as, as well as play for them. Um, but it was an outrage. And can you imagine that this guy was eventually given a testimonial match because of the outrage and the fact that he didn't have any money. It was, and he had a testimonial match for his services to Newcastle United and it was played at Roker Park at Sunderland because of the way that he left Newcastle United and the audacity of having a, a sports shop, which he, he opened, he still opened and still had. He had a Newcastle United legend has to take his testimonial at Roker Park it's in Sunderland. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And the amazing thing is, I, I was a good friend of, of Frank's and... Um, because he was so badly treated by Newcastle, in September 2014, as recently as that, which is, he left in 56, that long ago, and by 2014, Newcastle United felt they had a right or wrong, and to do that, they, they inaugurated him into the Newcastle United Hall of Fame. And 
to do that, then, then by now, Frank had died, of course, they invited all his family up to St. James's Park for a special ceremony to put him into the Hall of Fame and put on a little um, uh, reception, etc., etc. The ironic thing was that they, they w- the family were then told they could invite X number of guests, their personal guests, to come to the do. One of the th- one of the things they did was invite me as as a guest because of my support of Frank when I also went to see him win the Amateur Cup as manager of No Shields. Um, so I was invited up to Newcastle United into the inner sanctum in the boardroom and all that as part of the um, family. And at that time, 2014, I wasn't flavour of the month with the hierarchy at Newcastle United. The Mike Ashley... Do you think you are now? Full swing. Sorry? So do you think you are now? No, I've been consistent <laughs> in, in my life. And um, to be brutally truthful, I have no wish to be. I'd rather tell the truth than curry favour. And um, I I rather enjoyed the afternoon with Frank's family, though, because um, certain people just had to bite the tongue because I was there as a guest of Frank. And uh, consider Newcastle Trent treated Frank so abysmally for 60 year, odd years they couldn't throw out one of his guests on the day they were writing a wrong. So somehow I managed to, to remain there. Uh, but the wonderful thing is that I w- talking to his family that day brought back so many memories of the way that he'd left Newcastle United. I remember his sister, Bob, telling me that all the Newcastle players at the time, in the 50s, when were told that they must not frequent the mate's shop. They mustn't go in Frank Brennan's shop. The Newcastle. Can you uh, intimidating players of that quality? And you're talking about other legends like Milburn and, and Mitchell, etc. They mustn't go in into Frank's shop because he'd, he'd had to leave the club under the circumstances he did. And his wages, be, because obviously there was a problem coming along well before it reached fruition and he ended up going to No Shields. His wages during this dispute with Newcastle, were cut from 15 quid a week to just 8 quid a week when he had a wife and six kids to support. And Newcastle cut his wages from 15 quid a week to 8 quid a week for a man that had just helped him win two FA Cup finals at Wembley. Absolutely. And yet his pride at what he'd achieved at Newcastle, I spoke to his son Jim on the same day, and he told me that he said, Dad, for years, carried his two FA Cup winning medals in the pocket of his trousers whenever he went out. And if anybody in a pub or anywhere come to shake his hand to say, I saw you at Newcastle, you were wonderful, mate, he would say, yeah, and we won the cup twice, you know. Have you seen me medals? <laughs> and he'd bring them out of the pocket and, and show, show the punters the medals. That's how proud he was of what he achieved at Newcastle. And for his career to end up the way it did was horrendous. And I was so sad about it because Frank was such a lovely guy and so uneasy that Stan Seymour, that did so much for Newcastle, had this one blot on the copybook. But if you talk about people that wrongly left Newcastle United because the club wanted to cash in on them, then you can't forget Frank Brennan, who was cruelly put down because he was trying to get a couple of quid 
because he was on 15 quid a week and it had been knocked down to 8 quid a week and he had 6 kids to look after and from the persona non grata at Newcastle going out at the height not when his career was virtually finished but he just won two cup finals and should have played in the third one but didn't because the dispute was on and he ends up not going to another top club but he with due respect to No Shields but he ends up going to No Shields the wonderful thing was that he won the Armada Cup with them and walked out at Wembley. So he got his third time at Wembley. He mightn't have got a 55 with us, but he got it in the Amateur Cup final in 59. What a fascinating tale. And that brings us to the end of Gibbo's Corner. We, he's picked seven names there. And John, I'm just going to get you to pick the one out of the, the names you have chosen. The, the one person out of those seven that you just think, that is that is the one we should definitely not have sold oh, at that stage. Dearie, dearie me, because I think they shouldn't have sold any of them because that's why I, I put them all in. Um, I've told you the one that is the greatest player of all is Beardsley. Um, and so to a great extent, it's him, but it isn't because it's not going to be Frank because he wasn't sold. It's not going to be Andy Cole because they went and replaced him with two very, very good players. Uh, but you're left with Supermark, that was a, an outrage. You're left with Gascoigne, who's one of the greatest players England's ever seen. You're left with Waddle and you're left with Beardsley. And all of those. But I think you would look at, at, at Gascoigne, you would look at Beardsley, and you would look at Supermark and say, at the time, they were the ultimate killer blows. Um but Newcastle have got a history of selling people that they should not sell. And isn't it a little bit surprising? No, that they haven't won things because they've done that. You don't win by selling the crown jewels. You win by keeping them and finding some more. 